Welcome to On Our Campus, a podcast dedicated to exposing corruption, discrimination, and misconduct in public higher education. This series, co-hosted by me, Suzette Grillot, and my friend and colleague, Jess Eddy, will focus primarily on the University of Oklahoma, but will occasionally address issues of corruption and misconduct at other institutions of higher ed as well. There is much to talk about when it comes to corruption on our campus, so let's get going. Hello, and welcome back to On Our Campus. This is Suzette Grillot, and I'm here with my co-host, Jess Eddy, as always. Welcome, Jess. And uh, we have a special guest today, Mary Hannah Popek, who is a freshman at the University of Oklahoma. And our conversation today is going to be about a difficult subject, one that many of us have read about extensively in the Daily and elsewhere at OU recently, um, and that is about Title IX and issues with rape, sexual harassment, sexual assault on the OU campus, and how the Title IX process works. So Mary Hannah and I became acquainted recently. Uh, Welcome, Mary Hannah, by the way. Welcome to On Our Campus. Thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. So just to let our listeners know, we were acquainted recently through a mutual friend who had read a paper that you had written about Title IX and thought that you and I ought to meet and chat about these issues because our mutual friend knew that I also had some thoughts and feelings about the Dino Line process. Yes. I've made that a little public. I think Jess as well. People know uh, that he has also had some unfortunate experiences with Title IX. But you wrote an amazing paper as a freshman here at OU entitled Universities Protect Rapists. So, you know, we're here to just let you start this conversation. So where would you like to begin in terms of, you know, kind of like why you wrote that paper or why you're here today? Um, So I wrote that paper in response to the experience I had with Title IX after my sexual assault that I experienced on campus last semester. I ended up going to the Title IX office because I had called OU Advocates, which, for the record, is an amazing resource on campus. The only place I really felt support from, I'd say, like, institutionally, I guess, aside from friends and family. Um, And they encouraged me to go because they told me about a mutual no contact order. And so I went through the Title IX reporting process. And I was just so frustrated with the way that it had turned out, with the way I had been treated, that when this opportunity to write this paper, the topic came up, um, I went for it. And it was a very eye-opening experience writing the paper. So you learned quite a lot. I can tell the paper, like I said, is amazing and really ought to be made available for others to learn about these issues in general. So what did you learn about Title IX? Well, the first thing I learned that I don't think very many people are aware of is that The way Title IX is run currently is in response to a Dear Colleague letter issued under President Obama's administration. And so it's a very loose set of guidelines with no legal repercussions. And so it has led to a very gray area where universities are attempting to fulfill these obligations without necessarily affecting their reputation. And so because of that, they're neglecting the assault survivors on their campus because they care way more about their own reputations. They're minimizing the number that they have to report on the Clary Act. So looking through your paper, pretty much every factual assertion that you make, I mean, it's almost, I'm in law school and it's almost written like a, like you're submitting this to a professor in law school. It's supported with legal citations So you've done your research on this issue. How did you go about doing that? Well, I did a lot of research through JSTOR. 
And I would say I probably read about 30 to 40 different papers and legal documents. The initial DCL issued in 2011 and also Betsy DeVos's most recently issued recommendations, which she's actually encouraging being turned into law, which is really upsetting because that specifically takes away most of the protections offered currently to survivors and is encouraging a face-to-face, more trial-like setting, forcing the survivors to face their accused in a very public setting. And that gets to the core of the issue, or one of the cores of the issues. What's going on in higher ed right now is this extrajudicial adjudicatory body that's out here determining guilt and innocence punishment, justice, and pretty much across the board missing the mark on a lot of those issues and goals. So I had some experiences at OU, and I went through Title IX processes, and at times when I started to do some of the research about how to navigate this situation, the first reason I started to have to do research is because I quickly realized I was in here with with no real allies or resources to handle the process. Is, is that how you started to dig in and dive in on this research? I wish I had done it before, but no, I really went into the Title IX process completely blind. And I think that was, this is so sad to say, but like one of my biggest mistakes is because I went in with none of this knowledge that I now have. And so I basically was at the mercy of the Title IX office, which is not a good place to be when it is systematically designed to shut you up. So when you say that, systematically designed to shut you up, where does that come from? I mean, what is it that you're actually feeling there in terms of that experience? Well, speaking on my own personal experience going through the Title IX process, within the span of a little over a month, I was called into their office seven separate times. I wrote a 3,500-word statement. I had to recount the details of my assault three separate times with nothing coming out of it. The individual that I had a complaint against, to use their words, had two other complaints from two other students. And so I was essentially refusing to go against this individual alone because there were two other accusations of assault against him. And so if I did it individually, all of the information from the two other accusations and reports against him would not be considered. And so my one story with no physical evidence, would likely get nowhere, which is what they told me, was that it would be a long process with no guarantees, which I guess is true for all reports, but... Let's unpack that, because I had the same experience. So you went into Title IX to tell your story. You're first off forced to tell it multiple times, but you were given a negative prognosis, And that's what I've said out here publicly, is that they are discouraging reporting. So you were given this negative prognosis where you're probably not going to get a finding. The evidence is uh, this or that. So they're evaluating your story. They're basically determining credibility. And this is before you've formally reported. So they're advising you on the outcomes of this investigation negatively before you've reported. And I know you know now, that's why we say Title IX serves to protect the university. Yes, absolutely. I mean, from my very first meeting, I would say that's probably was said to me in the first 10 minutes, was that a finding would be unlikely. And at the time, I didn't really realize 
the weight of what was being said, the real implications of that, I thought, oh, they're just trying to save me from the pain of going through this process and nothing coming out of it. I didn't really realize the systematic issues here and how this went so much deeper than just the people who were in that room. And so throughout my research, I realized this is a huge systematic problem, not just here, but it is really bad here, but in most universities. And that's what's so heartbreaking. Mary, Hannah, you're a freshman still. It's the spring of 2020 now. So this happened last year in the fall of 2019. Right around the time Joe Harris announced a major increase in funding and staff for Title IX. Also, right around the time there's local, national media attention on OU's Title IX office. And what you're telling me is that in the middle of all that, they're doing the same dang thing. Absolutely. I mean, I can't speak to how it was before. This is my obviously my first interaction with them, but based on what I've heard from other people, the exact same. So when they added, as Justice just mentioned, that when they added the additional staff to the Title IX office, did you feel like that was the problem, that it was staff, that they were just like, they needed more people in the office? In my experience, I only ever met with two individuals, um, and I heard about the director or head of Title IX. I don't know their exact uh, job title. So I can't speak to whether or not it has anything to do with how many people work there. Maybe that has to do with the number of people reporting, although I doubt it. I think the bigger issue is that the university doesn't care. They said or did that to look good, not because they cared about its students or its faculty, except for those they're trying to protect. That's right. More wisdom from 19-year-old freshmen than the entire university administration. Yeah, our young people know. Mary Hannah, you've obviously endured a lot and had to go through this experience. But one of the things that you were hoping to accomplish with this conversation today is to let people know about some of the resources that are available. You mentioned, for example, protective orders and things like that that go unadvertised, that you weren't aware of some of the things that were available to you before you reported. Can you talk a little bit about that and your experience with being able to protect yourself and ensure your own safety and well-being throughout this process because the Title IX office wasn't going to protect you necessarily? So every student at OU is aware of Step In, Speak Out, which is the university's way of making themselves feel better about protecting students against sexual assault, which is a very minimal training and says, here's the Title IX number, here's OU advocates, have a nice life, basically. Um, And what they completely left out of that is what resources Title IX actually offers. There was absolutely no mention of protective orders such as mutual no-contact orders, the fact that they can help you move out of your dorm or get your classes changed or have an escort if you feel unsafe on campus. And what I've come to realize is that it's likely because you have to go through a formal report in order to get these resources, which they're mandated to report under the Clary Act. And so I think what I would say is the most important thing is letting people be aware of the fact that if there is someone who makes you unsafe or someone who has put you in an unsafe position or who has assaulted you, 
there are ways you can curtail that behavior before it gets worse without going through the entire Title IX process. You can get a mutual no contact order. You can move out of your dorm building. You can get yourself removed out of those classes. Escorted to class. Yeah, you can be escorted to class. I had no idea. Yeah, you can have OUPD escort you to class. So where is it and when is it that you learned of these resources then? If these things weren't shared with you during the process of which you're going through the reporting. So speaking on my own experience a little more, I was assaulted by the same person twice. And after the second incident, I had spoken to a friend who said, you should really call OU Advocates. And so I did. And I had a great conversation with them. And they told me about mutual no contact orders. That's how I found out. And I think something very upsetting about that is the fact that if I had known mutual no contact orders existed, the second assault never would have happened. Okay, so you had gone through all of the Title IX trainings, you'd gone through all of the the required trainings for a student, but you were not made aware of these resources until after you were assaulted a second time and you called for an advocate. So what you're suggesting then is that the training itself, not mentioning all of these things, that you could have done after the first assault would have prevented the second assault. Yes, that's what I am saying. The trainings that the university mandates are at the very least inadequate, but in all honesty, I would say a waste of time. They're not really telling anyone anything they don't know. It's a Band-Aid. Well, it's, it's checking a box, you know. I mean, the trainings that we have to do on everything, it's, it's a liability issue, you know. And so we've, we've done these trainings, um, and that's, that's pretty standard and typical. But the information that's being provided apparently is not sufficient. Now, you mentioned speaking about your own experience, but I know in preparation for this conversation, you'd mentioned that you've noticed an escalation in these types of situations, or at least an escalation in incidents from your experience that you are aware of others who are experiencing sexual assault and rape and are deciding to not go to Title IX because of your experience. As a member of the Greek community, I hear a lot of stories from other survivors of things that have happened within the Greek community. And one of the biggest issues I've noticed is that because of the Title IX process, because of the lack of accountability that students are being held to, it has increasingly become worse and more unsafe to be a woman on this campus. I've heard countless stories of girls being drugged at parties. I've heard countless stories of organizations doing nothing about it. And it's heartbreaking to know that whether they go to the organization or the university, there aren't going to be repercussions. And I think that that culture is being propagated by our Title IX office because they're refusing, essentially, to acknowledge the problem or hold people accountable for their actions. So I know Jess has mentioned, you know, his own experience. And my experience with Title IX has largely been as an administrator, faculty member, and having to deal with faculty members who have engaged in egregious sexual misconduct Um, who've raped students, who've been allowed to leave this university. This is a broader problem. I mean, this is one of the reasons I think why our mutual friend connected us is because I've been relatively vocal about the fact that this is a 
a broader issue. And you very bravely coming in and lending your voice to this issue shows that this is real, that our students uh, who are in vulnerable positions on campus are being assaulted and raped and the university is, isn't doing what it needs to do to protect the students. You know, we've been recently reading about the College of Fine Arts, for example, a faculty member that raped a student multiple times and was allowed to leave the university. You know, there's just the universities protect rapists, as you titled your paper, is there's just so much evidence of that. The question is, is now how do we address this? I know Jess and I have, are constantly talking about reform. We need reform. We need new leadership at a minimum at this university. We need new leadership in the Title IX office, new leadership in general. But based on your research, what is it that you want to see done? That's a really big question. Um, you mentioned yeah. culture. It's part of the culture in terms of how people behave, but also how Title IX or others respond. And so where and how do we change that culture? I mean, these are big questions with no easy answers. But this is what we're (laughs) trying to do is to ponder and put our brains around it, you know, because as you mentioned, this isn't a problem that's just here, although it's particularly bad here at the University of Oklahoma, but it's it's something that is it's across higher ed. Yeah. So it deserves, you know, broader solutions. But if but for you, I mean like from your perspective as a student who's dealt with this directly, what would you have expected? You said you went into it obviously blindly, but you had some expectations, obviously, that they would care for you. Yeah, and I think one of the things that the Title IX office does really well is make it seem like they care, when in reality, they're just protecting the university's reputation. But they come at you with smiles and we're here for you, and it's not true. Um, And I think one of the biggest issues with that is that it's systematically a conflict of interest. It is an office in the university that is designed to protect students, but in reality protects the reputation of the university. I don't know how logistically this would work or if it's realistically a possibility, but ideally the Title IX office wouldn't be housed through the university at all. Right. And just for our listeners um, joining us, we're talking about Title IX, which is the office that handles gender discrimination, which also encompasses sex discrimination, which also includes sexual assault. And so Title IX is an office that is reports to the president um, at OU, works closely with legal counsel. We talk about why Title IX has an, an inherent conflict of interest at OU, at any university they're at. We have to un- explain the Clary Act um, and why Title IX a- serves to protect the reputation of a university. So the Clary Act is a, is a, is a federal statute that mandates that all reported acts of sexual violence to the university must be reported to the federal government annually in a public document. And a lot of institutions, oversight, watchdogs pay attention to those reports, um, and they see trends in increasing numbers of sexual violence at universities, and they'll analyze the university and compare their policies. Are they working? Are sexual assault incidents going up? So the university as an institution, is incentivized to do things to prevent those Clary Act numbers from rising. And the way they have determined to do that is put people in Title IX to tell people, like Mary Hannah, when she comes in after having suffered two incidents of sexual assault, telling her story that prognosis negative. Sorry, it happened. 
doesn't look like we can do anything for you. And that's not your just your situation. I mean, that just about everybody I know that's had to deal with the Title IX office is given that warning. Well, not sure that this will actually be a policy violation. And I think that's the other issue is they're not really looking for did somebody, you know, engage in misconduct. It's did it violate the policy, right? And so it's like this really, really limited view. But what you brought up was the conflict of interest and it being embedded in a university structure. And I think that's what we need to contemplate is, is that really the best way to deal with this issue? Or should there not be some parallel organization or something that's more independent, right? That isn't reporting up the channels to those who are trying to protect the image of the university. Yeah, absolutely. And as I've learned more and more about Um, just the way that our university's administration is structured, the more frustrated I become. Just learning that the conversation I had was had with the director of Title IX, and then that conversation went left, right, up, down, through other university channels before they could make a decision as to whether or not they were going to investigate. It shouldn't be a question. If you have a student with three different reports against them, from three separate individuals, one of which is a report of two separate incidents, in what world is it, are you not going to investigate that independently as far as in the interest of the safety of students? In OU world. Exactly. And that's that's what we need to change. Mariana, you're a freshman. And I mean... And this happens in her first semester. Statistically speaking, almost all sexual assaults are experienced within the first two semesters of college. I think that the reason why so many assaults occur in the first two semesters of a student's time at college is due to the fact that they're seen as vulnerable. And older students who want to take advantage of that will. And I would say a lot of that has to do with the fact that they know how Title IX is structured. They know that they're young, they're in an unfamiliar environment, and they they're not going to have a support system to lean on. And so it's these predatory individuals are just taking advantage of the situation. And I think that a big problem with that is that the university is doing nothing to stop that. They say they have step in, speak out, like learn about how to protect yourself when in reality they're doing nothing to curtail the behavior of predatory individuals. So these older individuals, these students who have been at OU, who know the culture, who know how this university probably handles sexual assault allegations, because as you said, it's a common occurrence in the Greek community and in the OU community. How does the reality of what college is at OU for you, how does that compare to what you dreamed about as a young woman growing up and ready to go college and study I mean are you able to stay optimistic sometimes or is it heavy I mean yeah it's really hard sometimes um I found myself sitting in the title nine office up in Walker Tower so you can like see out into the Walker Adams mall and I was just sitting there and there were people playing basketball and walking around and I was just sitting there like no I like that that just can't be me like I'm sitting here in this office I leave my room to go to class and to go pick up food. I don't even eat in public. I spend all of my time in my room. I mean, not anymore, but that's where I was at that moment. Um, It just completely derailed my entire first semester. It felt like the Title IX office just pressed pause on my life. 
I think that's the best way I could describe the effects of that. And I, I could almost say that the Title IX process, it's not worse, but it's, it comes pretty close to as bad as the effects of sexual assault for me personally. Mary Hannah, it's insult to injury. You experienced what you experienced with the sexual assault and then having to, to endure that process. And, you know, and you're not alone. Um, you know, you're also very brave. Appreciate you coming in here and sharing that story with us, sharing your experience. It helps us all to recognize that these are real experiences and real people that experience them. And that's why we have to do better. You know, it's why we have to keep the attention focused and the spotlight shining on these experiences. I don't know. I've not talked to anyone who's ever had a good experience with Title IX. Not a single experience that I, that's been highlighted that I know of. I mean, that's telling, you know, when all of the experiences with Title IX are troubling. And so we've got to keep that pressure up and you are making that happen. It's really important. And we thank you for doing that. Thank you for taking action to see that others might not experience it in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Our Campus, a podcast dedicated to exposing corruption, discrimination, and misconduct on college campuses. You've been listening to Jess Eddy and me talk with Mary Hannah Popek, an OU freshman, about her experiences with the Title IX office. If you are interested in reading Mary Hannah's paper about Title IX and her experience, you can find it on the resources page of our website at www.onourcampuspodcast.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this discussion or answer any questions you might have. You can send us an email at onourcampuspodcast at gmail.com, as well as follow and interact with us on Twitter and Facebook at On Our Campus. For my co-host, Jess Eddy, guest Mary Hannah Popek, producer Jackie Braun, and everyone at On Our Campus, I'm Suzette Gralatz.